Hello everyone, it's January 25th, 2022. This week we're taking another look at Artemis. What's changed recently, what hasn't, what to expect, and when. Then we talked to Alex Lau of Kepler Communications, a cool company if you need to quickly move data literally anywhere on the planet. Satellites are useful. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 343 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So did y'all see the uh, the smoke at Mojave Air and Spaceport? the other day no did not so, uh, no evidently okay. something went boom uh so this was abl's uh second stage apparently they were doing a test and it had an anomaly the people there yeah they heard this boom there's a lot of different companies or a number of different companies that all are using the site and so it was kind of like what the heck's happening you know information's moving at the speed of twitter and uh the smoke dissipated after only 20-ish minutes, but it turns out that, yeah, their test of a second stage for the RS-1 rocket they're working on uh, went boom. And so we don't know much about it. It was uh, other than it was safe. <laughs> what happened, it's kind of scary. Like, you know, there's yeah, there's a lot of people, a lot of equipment, a lot of stuff happening at Mojave. Yeah, a lot of different things happening there. It, it's a spaceport right that's like its official mm -hmm. designation but really it's kind of more like i don't know just like i don't know how to think of it it's like you just try out crazy stuff because i think it hasn't really there's not much of a need for a spaceport that sounds more like right. it's an airport but it's not really an airport it's just a place where you go to fly crazy new launch vehicles yeah, it's yeah. an up-and-coming kind of place yeah it's it's the middle of the desert it that's what you do out in the middle of the desert yeah it's true <laughs> blow stuff up store large amounts of things because uh, uh, Chris in the chat points out, yeah, it's also a, an airplane graveyard. I just made the unfortunate connection. I, I was wondering if this is where that uh, Virgin Galactic accident happened that killed uh, the three people on the ground. Yes. And yeah, that was at Mojave yep. too. Mm -hmm. And so yep. I wonder if some people saw this and were just like, Ugh. oh yeah. yeah, bad memories. Yeah. Yeah. So not a whole lot of information just yet, but uh, maybe we'll talk yeah. about this in a future episode. Right. We find out what went wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The smoke is just black. So presumably this was something burning other than rocket fuel. Hopefully ABL will do a little bit better in the future. A, a little bit better. I mean, like they're, they're testing. Like the point of testing is to do this when it doesn't matter. So. Okay. True. I, yeah. To, just to be overwhelmingly positive. I think that's, this was a good thing. Artemis is being rescheduled again. And to be honest, I don't know where it even last left off. I, I can't keep track anymore. This is more of a shuffle than than anything else. So it's it's even different than some of the other changes that we're thinking about. Same launches, but putting different things on them. Is that a better way to phrase it? Like it's just they're yeah. kind of like changing the logistics of yeah. uh, how we do things here. So what we have um, just to start off uh, with Artemis 3, that is scheduled for a landing in 2025. Um, and there is a SpaceX launch in 2024 that will be launching. What's it launching? The propulsion element, I believe. Um, and something else, and that will be spiraling out over the course of a year, I think. So that happens first. Yeah, it's it's the habitable uh, element, Halo, and the PP, and they're getting launched at the same time. I remember that being. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna now. say, I think they're getting launched at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So two things: the PPE and Halo both launching on a Falcon Heavy, and so that'll take about a year once it's launched. Um, and then in 2025, you have Artemis three, and that will be so far the one confirmed mission 
this will be the like the only confirmed landing that we have on the moon. So, or at least you know, um, it's part of that mission. But after that, uh, nothing has been put on the books yet because they actually don't have a lander. <laughs> um, you just have the one from SpaceX because so the contract is just for. One landing during Artemis three, but that's it. It's not as though the contract is for like multiple landings over the course right, of right. the you know the program. So it's kind of interesting that they haven't. I mean, again, I, I I've kind of lost track and I haven't been keeping track of it well enough to know that. I guess I'm trying to say like, why hasn't this been addressed sooner? I don't understand why this is so you know such big news now because you know we must have known for quite some time then that we just have the one lander, but we have all these missions. So you're like you're only going to be landing once. Okay, okay, I think I see, and and I might have a good answer for you. I, d- I don't think that, that that contract is what's at issue here. Um, like for for the commercial resupply program, you know, they didn't buy all of the commercial crew and commercial cargo uh, missions all at once. They just, they buy a certain number of them with the understanding that they will be buying more in the future. And so I, I believe for HLS, you know, they, they buy two missions with the understanding that they'll be, buy, be buying more. And as far as I understand, that doesn't really have an impact, uh, on the re, the, the scheduling, the, the shuffle that we're about to talk about. But I believe, uh, with HLS, the other landing missions that, that are to follow, they actually, um, and I have to get the wording right, but they involve something different that cannot be provided by SpaceX, which is kind of surprising considering how capable that vehicle is. The other landings would, quote, they would have more aggressive requirements. That's not really explained as to what that means. I think it is uh, ambiguous at this point. You know, is it, is, it, is it related to safety? Is it related to technical ability? Is it related to payload? Is it related to, like, in, in which of those dimensions is it going to be? stricter or whatever because it says it's a different lander with more aggressive requirements so a different lander than option payload more safety margin more this that or the other thing and so they'll be open to like other companies providing that service but i guess as of right now it wouldn't be spacex i mean it could be but not necessarily with starship Uh, but anyway i kind of got off topic or off the timeline Mm -hmm. here so one thing that we also know is that we're talking about one mission per year if this is scheduled for a landing in 2025 on Artemis 3, that means that the next mission cannot be until uh, 2026, which would be Artemis 4. That is the portion that is tasked with uh, the gateway assembly. Um, and so this will be launching on the Block 1B, which is um, the much more capable upper stage. And that'll be delivering uh, the IHAB. And I guess that, you know, at that point, they will be putting together the propulsion element and, you know, they'll be assembling everything there on orbit. But the problem with and maybe this is part of the reshuffling right so they're putting a lot of pressure on artemis 4 because if you have to transport the ihab it has to be kept under 10 metric tons because it's also carrying the orion spacecraft apparently that's you know a a pretty tight margin there and so nasa has been working with esa to get the ihab under that limit it seems like it's been pretty hard i don't know what they're looking at right now, like uh, what kind of tonnage, but this is uh, proving to be a pretty big problem. So they're only going to be barely able to get both Orion and the IHAB to that point. Can I ask a basic question? And, and I don't know if you guys know anymore. So is IHAB just another module, like an ESA provided one, but like no other role that's unique? Because Halo, I always think of is it's got habitable in the name. Yep. So is that true? Okay. Just another module essentially to increase yep. the 
usable space in there. Okay. Yeah, and I, I it, it's so it's kind of like the ESA module in ISS is at Columbus. Right, right. And so it, it, it from my understanding, it'll have uh, additional science, but yeah, it's it's just an international partner uh, module. It's expanding the existing capabilities rather than adding something fundamentally new to the or or maybe they're they're probably actually I'm sure there's something. Yeah, I mean, totally so, that it's adding, so but. I, I have Japan is working on I have uh, in a way that I don't believe they're working on the Esprit module. Um, and so Japan was at one point going to be providing a robotic arm, sort of like Gem on ISS, um, uh, the, the exposed palette. Or the exposed module, exposed laboratory, whatever it is. I, my understanding was that at some <laughs> point they were going to be right. Yeah. Uh, exposed facility EF, I think. Um, but yeah, they were going to be doing something like that at some point, I, I believe. So I wouldn't be surprised if I have, um, included something like that, but ju- just, a, just another module is, is a perfectly fine way to think about it. I think. Right. And, and, um, and another module around the moon. I don't mean to downplay it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It like it's not important. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I really do not intend to mean that when I, when I say that. I just, right, it's, right, right. yeah, it's, it's not that it's, the same way that one is a propulsion element versus another is yeah. a habitation element versus right, another right. might be an airlock versus another segment might be something totally different. Well, this certainly just looks like a module. It doesn't look like an airlock or anything else you know, that, that you had just mentioned. So yeah, I yeah. think that's pretty safe. Yeah, pretty safe to say. And you know, IHAB stands for International Habitation Modules, so like says a lot. You know, we're we're talking uh, bedrooms and dining tables. So yeah, like as I said, um, the option A, which was the award to SpaceX, that only covers one crewed flight as well as uh, the lander with Starship, um, and that's on Artemis 3. So the next step would be something called LETS, which is uh, the Lunar Exploration Transportation Services, and that's where they will select one or more companies for future landings. And again, there is this vague requirement that they have that we don't know exactly what it is, um, but it's more, um, what was the word, aggressive? I mean, and that might be in terms of cost, which is like one of the theories is that maybe huh. it's going to be, you know, that they want more landers at a lower cost. And so maybe something as big as what SpaceX is offering, you know, yeah. um, well, al- so, although they were the lowest bidder, right? So, right. Well, and, and, and Starship certainly fills a lot of capability that the HLS, the, the op, the, the first option A, uh, contract didn't really call for. But, but let's, um, I wouldn't think about it as like one mystery requirement, like, uh, you know, as if this is like, um, Iron Chef or something. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's as a whole, um, is intended to move us towards, uh, sustainable, uh, habitation around the moon. And so it's looking at, uh, reusability and reliability. Um, and the let's contract itself, um, it's also referred to as next step to appendix N. So next step was part of the original or it, it's what the original HLS contract was under. Next step two is like, the next version of this contract and appendix N is sustainable human landing system studies and risk reduction. And part of appendix N will be, yeah, let's the, uh, this next contract. And so like, if you think about this as like a a mystery, uh, ingredient, you're gonna wind up having an incorrect image of this in your head. This, this is really like a series of contracts where you're, 
having a lander going from gateway to the moon and back. Now, of course, that's going to include a lot of additional requirements. And, you know, a lot of those requirements are not going to be well characterized by NASA at this point. They're not even NASA is going to know what they're going to need uh, to be able to uh, accomplish that sort of repeated mission, mm-hmm. uh, this, this sustainable presence. So it's going to be really interesting to see what's required. And I have the sneaking suspicion that uh, Starship, maybe not the, you know, Artemis 3 Starship or the Artemis 4 Starship, but I think that Starship is going to, um, as a platform, be well capable of fulfilling the let's requirements. Now, I I think it's really interesting, uh, David, that you said, maybe it's too big. I think that would be the the major thing that I would worry about at this point. And I I hadn't even thought about that. I think that's that's really insightful. Mm. Yeah, maybe it's not agile enough to be able to do sort of a smaller scale, uh, you know, smaller, but more often kind of kind of mission. So I think that's a, a really interesting uh, guess that you had there. Possibly, yeah. But yeah, so like as you said, um, it's probably just that they need to characterize exactly what will be required in like the long term, I guess, because, you know, no one's really been to the moon in this way, at least like ever, right? There have been people on the moon, but it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was what flags and footprints. So right. yeah, I guess it's true that like NASA doesn't know what the real requirements are going to be. So they put down a starship and then, you know, they, they gather a lot of data from that. And then from there, they have to figure out, okay, what's going to be required to gain this, uh, you know, sustainable presence. And mm-hmm. so I think that, yeah, that's probably what it is. So it might be like a lot of little things, right? Is that kind of yeah. like, and, it, like and it should be right. Like, uh, obviously gateway isn't that big. Um, but you should have different landers doing different things. It doesn't make much sense in my head, uh, to have, you know, four starships, uh, that are going here, hither, thither, and thon. Like, no, like have a starship, have, um, you know, have a, have a couple of different vehicles, uh, you know, a blue origin lander or, a, um, a alpaca, alpaca, okay. like, you know, get, get something like an alpaca that, you know, just, you're going to be going to different places on the moon. You're going to be, you'll have different down mass and different up mass and all these different requirements. Maybe the ability to stay longer on the surface or the ability to visit multiple sites before going back to gateway, or maybe the ability to go straight from the lunar surface back home. That variety is going to be a good thing. So, I mean, I guess this is how like we're witnessing how you effectively bootstrap a permanent presence on the moon. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's how you move to the next the next stage of civilization, like to be very grand and dramatic, like, you know, at some point we are going to be a space, we're a spacefaring race right now. At some point we're going to be a space habitating race and a multi-planetary race. This is the very beginning, you know, this is us stretching our arms and, and, and doing that. So I think it's cool. It just, it just sucks that, that we're not going to get a landing once a year. We're going to get a landing and then, what two or three years and then maybe another landing and it will be disappointing after that first one right yeah Especially. i know <laughs> so to summarize so far we have um we have artemis 3 which will be in 2025 and then artemis 4 in 2026 and then in 2027 that will be artemis 5 and so this is the one that will make a landing with some thus far unknown vehicle um, with <laughs> with something and um this will also be flying uh the isa esprit which is uh the european 
system for providing refueling infrastructure in telecommunications. So I guess that's what the acronym is. Um, so basically, this will supply enhanced communications and refueling capability. Okay. Uh, so that's one thing that will be on board. Uh, another thing uh, will be the uh, Canadian robotic arm, as well as an unpressurized lunar rover. So that's really cool. So yeah, that's 2027. And that's, of course, assuming that all of this stays on schedule. So Right. Not only that it stays on schedule, but that SLS Block 1B uh, is a thing. Uh, 1B is planned to fly uh, on Artemis 4 for the first time. And, you know, 1B really gets you a lot of oomph, you know, the ability to fly not only a uh, an Orion, but all these additional modules. So, yeah, yeah, we'll... We'll see. And uh, Artemis Four is is an uncrewed mission, by the way. Uh, oh, oh no, no, Esprit is going to be flown between between five and six. There, um, it's not going to be on the same mission. And you know, uh, four is as far as we've gotten in terms of like actual uh, actual funding and like locking things in. Uh, hmm. uh, five is still technically like a proposal, but you know, it's it, it'll go through. We just we're likely to see changes and delays. And speaking of Congress, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if you guys know, knew this, but um, there was a bill in Congress that failed this week. It was the voting rights bill. So, you know, American politics, sorry. Uh, the Democratic Party basically wanted to force a vote on a bill that they knew was going to fail, mostly so that they could point fingers and say, look, it's not our fault. We brought it to to the floor these people voted no, like their names are now on on the books as voting no to this Voting Rights Act. They're in trouble. I mean, like uh, uh, Kristen Cinema or Kirsten Cinema, Kristen Cinema, Kirsten, Kirsten. <laughs> Thank you. You would know, wouldn't you? Uh, from Arizona. Son, yes. <laughs> yeah. Cinema uh, was actually uh, censured uh, this week by the uh, the state Democrats. They unanimously voted to uh, to censure her for voting no on this voting rights bill and good job anyway that voting rights bill that failed they were able to uh slip past the filibuster um because instead of writing a new bill and bringing it up for argument and making it vulnerable to a filibuster they actually took a bill that had already passed the house and uh threw out everything that was in it and rewrote it as their voting rights bill. So, you know, uh, mm. a voting rights bill in, uh, in another, in the, in the cloak of another, <laughs> of another bill. Um, and the bill that they, um, ended up, um, cannibalizing was actually a NASA funding bill. It was a bill that was going to give NASA the ability to, um, sign a certain type of lease, um, that would allow them to, to pay for, uh, facilities that they need. And it's just, it's, you know, kind of funny. Cause like, I believe we had talked about this ability, uh, that NASA was asking for and yeah, pass the house, <laughs> got to Senate and <laughs> got chewed up and spit out. Um, politics is messy. Uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but it, in, interestingly enough, just to keep going on American politics, sorry. Um, the representative who sponsored, uh, the bill, in its former life as a, as a NASA funding bill, uh, had absolutely no problem with this action. Uh, I read a quote from them saying something like, yeah, you know, if I, if I, uh, 
by coincidence happened to be involved in getting uh, voting rights legislation passed, I'm all for it. Go ahead and take it, (laughs) which I think would be my attitude as well. Yeah, I'm vaguely remembering that now, hearing about NASA leasing. um, And and yeah, that that, that was the key. When I heard leasing, I was like, oh, right. That was popping up on social media. (laughs) So that's where we stand on Artemis, (laughs) Uh, for better or for worse. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, Gamma Ray Observatory Suffers Anomaly in LEO. The Neil Garrell Swift Observatory went into safe mode last week, with NASA speculating that a reaction wheel may have failed. The spacecraft has a total of six reaction wheels on board, and after the anomaly, the mission team powered off the suspected problematic wheel. A statement from NASA said that the observatory and all of its instruments are otherwise healthy and operating nominally, and the team is looking to restore science operations using the five remaining wheels. This is the first time in Swift's 17 years on orbit that a reaction wheel has failed. Then next up, SpaceX wins a new contract. SpaceX has been awarded a $102 million five-year contract by the United States Air Force. The contract is part of the Rocket Cargo Program, a project led by the Air Force Research Laboratory to develop the ability to transport military cargo and humanitarian aid around the world by means of suborbital rockets. This will give the Air Force access to SpaceX's commercial launch and booster landings to collect key data. SpaceX will also provide cargo bay designed to accommodate intermodal containers, which are also known as shipping containers, with an emphasis on rapid load and unload capability. The Air Force plans to eventually bring other launch vehicle providers into the rocket cargo program as well. And finally, ExoMars to launch this year. Yay! Uh, high altitude drop tests in 2019 revealed an issue with ExoMars's parachute bags. This was exacerbated by COVID restrictions and led to the mission missing its intended launch in 2020. With JPL's help, the parachute system is now trusted, and the ExoMars team is making a push through final tasks, including tweaks to rover software, as well as vehicle integration activities. The multinational Mars mission is now on track for a launch at the end of September atop a proton. All right, welcome to the interview. Today we have Alex Lau of Kepler Communications. Hey, Alex, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your title, uh, didn't, I didn't write it down, but you're in FPGA programming? Or FPGA development? Yeah, FPGA development. I like to explain because people don't know what an FPGA is, uh, digital system designer. Okay, so like you, you had mentioned a, a little bit of your history with the company. So I thought it'd be good to like rewind on the Alex clock and and start from your time at McMaster University. Um, you got a bachelor's first and then you did an internship at Kepler. So can you tell us about like why you chose computer engineering as your bachelor's and and what you learned and what surprises you might have met along the way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think an interest in computers actually started uh, probably with video games. Um, And I, uh, at that time, I was playing some StarCraft and a lot of people were making custom maps and I wanted to learn how to make maps and then the trigger system and then eventually got into scripting. And then, you know, talking to some people, I wanted to make a website and then kind of started doing that. And it eventually led to microcontrollers. I, I love reading online. And it was, uh, I think at that time, right when Wikipedia was just getting good. And then there was a website like how that, that was uh, called How Stuff Works. And I, I read basically everything I could find. 
um, and eventually started uh, writing C code and um, got into embedded programming. Um, but then eventually got into computer engineering and was introduced to FPGAs uh, in school. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, it's just a love for technology and, and it yeah. kind of guided me here. Well, see, I, I am a huge uh, microcontroller kind of person. I, I just, I love being able to build something that has logical functionality that can just sit on my desk. Um, so I, I'm looking at the at the time frame. I'm assuming we're talking about Arduino. Is that right? Yeah. So Arduino has just showed up and actually um, someone had worked for at that time. So I, I uh, ended up with a job in in late high school uh working in a machine shop um and uh someone had gifted me an arduino uh with a breadboard and a couple of components and mm. yeah i eventually got started with that and i'm so thankful that they did that um you know they <laughs> they they spent like 100 bucks 200 bucks to buy me a kit and you know this is that's that's what it starts right yeah yeah, that's awesome. And, and I just love the, the different trajectories that, um, different systems lead to, like Arduino and C lead to things like FPGAs and, uh, some somebody who starts out in uh in circuit python like me you know we're going to go for much softer trajectories we're going to be looking at uh website design and and app development and it's it's kind of cool that you know these things tend to sort people out pretty quickly and you know you find what you like and you can kind of follow that trajectory sometimes um so so you went to uh McMaster University got your BS in computer engineering and then you got what sounds like an amazing internship. What, what did, like, did you apply to the internship? Did somebody else apply for you? Like, how did you wind up at, at Kepler? So I kind of want to uh, start the story at, uh, I think, uh, December 2016, actually. Um, I was supposed to be studying for exams. Um, this was uh, <laughs> the end of the term. And, you know, you need to study and you need to sleep. Uh, you kind of need both. Um, and I wasn't doing either. Um, so I was procrastinating a little bit. Uh, it was late at night. I think, uh, I started the job search around like 11 PM on like a Friday. Um, and I was actually looking for hardware jobs. I did not originally apply to an FPGA position. There wasn't one. Um, and I had searched online, uh, in the Waterloo region. There's a place called Communitech and, uh, Kepler had a posting on there. And when I searched hardware, that's the only posting that came up. I took a look at it and I can, uh, promise you that uh, I was extremely skeptical, right? Um, <laughs> you, you have a posting that says, uh, oh, we're a new startup, uh, a bunch of recent graduates from University of Toronto, um, and we're going to launch satellites. And you're like, <laughs> your, your first thought is like, uh, are you sure? Um, so I did some searching. I spent a couple hours searching, actually, um, and ended up on their Twitter page. Um, they're graduates from University University of Toronto, so I was pretty confident they had uh, the technical background, even if they don't have the experience yet of actually launching a satellite at that time. Um, but I had confidence they had the the, the educational background theory uh, to, to do it. But I, I was digging through the Twitter page, and the thing that actually convinced me to apply was a photo. Very early on the Twitter page, you can still find it. It's a photo of the founders uh, painting the walls of their office themselves. Uh, and they kind of put up a cheeky posting uh, saying, oh, we do renovations too, not just satellites. And um, <laughs> I think that's just a demonstration mm -hmm. of the hard work and uh, work ethic um, that the Kepler team has and the de determination um, to get things done. And that convinced me to apply. And uh, I actually got an email back uh, directly from Mina, uh, our CEO, 
um, at like 7.40 in the morning. And since I stayed up for so 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 long in the night, uh, I got up at, at near noon <laughs> and was a little bit panicked <laughs> at first. I, I can't say I've had that exact experience, but I can <laughs> I definitely had that experience with a couple of variables tweaked. So, right. So you, you were looking for hardware because you, it, it, I mean, looking at your LinkedIn page, it looks like you were probably interested in robotics, uh, in, in your undergrad. Is that, is that true? Uh, a combination of things, right? Um, I had the opportunity to be part of a robotics team in high school. And that certainly taught me a lot. That was actually the thing that got me back into C programming. Um, I had done some C programming in Arduino. Uh, wrote some code and then rapidly burned out um, <laughs> and then didn't touch it for, for about two years. I think um, just being able to comprehend technical documentation was so mm -hmm. difficult that I spent two months yeah. on it, got reasonably far, and then just couldn't go on. And I guess I, it, the robotics team kind of restarted that we were actually one of the only teams that wrote in C. The the competition, this is the first robotics competition, uh, they had options of doing it in LabVIEW, in Java, or C. And uh, we were the one of the only teams that did C. I did basically all of the programming on the robot, and, and that got me back into things. But during my undergrad, uh, most of my experience is actually in, in automotive. Uh, I've worked on three race cars uh, with that had... Um, custom electronics, high voltage batteries that we assembled by hand. We did all the mechanical stuff. We did composites and wrote all the software control systems and stuff like that to get a race car on the track. And this was for the Formula SAE competition, uh, sorry, the Formula Hybrid competition, which is uh, somewhat uh, similar to the Formula SAE competition. And eventually we got into EcoCar 3, uh, which is run by GM and the U.S. Department of Energy. And it's a four-year competition. It was super cool. We uh, modified the heck out of uh, a, I think, 2017 Camaro. I made it a very powerful hybrid. Yeah, that, I mean, like that—that—that that, that is serious racing. That's not—that's <laughs> no joke. I, our uh, our race car mechanic is not in the chat <laughs> today, <laughs> otherwise he'd be freaking out right now. Um, okay, so so you know you're you're looking at at this Kepler listing and you're feeling some skepticism, but it, it's about uh, about the doability of the project, not. It doesn't sound like you were super concerned about it not being mechatronics or, or automotive or something. H how did you feel about the subject matter when you were applying? So something that I've learned over time, uh, working in robotics, uh, writing software, and doing a whole bunch of this stuff. And, and I mentioned I, I, I worked as a mechanic at some point in, in my career, um, is that things are more similar than they appear to be at first. If you think about what is a satellite, right? It's it's a box full of computers. It's a box with uh, with some batteries and uh, power generation and added to control systems. And you know what is a what is a car? It's it's all the similar things, just with the focus on different components, right? It has more power mm -hmm. output, but it's still also a box full of computers with control systems and and. Uh, and things like that. How long did your internship last? Uh, so it was a four-month internship, so it was pretty short, uh, a pretty intensive four months at that. And then I was actually asked that uh, I stay on as a contractor for a little bit longer, uh, just to hand over some projects. Um, so I guess five months, give or take. I've never done an internship. And so like, I would be really curious to hear what that's like because you know i i was in no place to do an internship when i got my bachelor's degree <laughs> and like I, I you're young right like folks with bachelor's degree you know fresh out of college 
uh, are really young and, and everything is brand new. So, so what was it like getting into a, a startup like this? Yeah, the first thing I want to actually highlight is that um, a lot of students, they don't, at that point, they don't really understand how much they can do. And the truth mm -hmm. is they can do a lot. Uh, we've actually had uh, some very incredible interns come in um, straight out of like their first year and they're capable of so much more than they thought they were. Um, and we kind of feed them a project that is actually just a bit beyond uh, what they think they're capable of, but we're pretty sure they're capable of. And they, they surprise us by even going further than what we imagined. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, an internship at Kepler. Um, first of all, I want to say it's uh, I walked in expecting to, uh, I was never interviewed as an FPGA developer. Um, I was actually interviewed to be a hardware developer, circuit board design, wiring harnesses, stuff like that. Um, and uh, I had a previous internship uh, that was in FPGA development. And on my first day, uh, uh, Mina mentioned to Mark, our, currently our chief architect, but uh, at that point, uh, he wrote most of the code um, that I did FPGA dev. And he, so he asked me if I wanted to FPGA dev, I did. Um, so I spent a couple months doing FPGA dev, but um, I think I designed two or three circuit boards as well during that internship mm -hmm. and wrote um, a decent amount of software as well. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between like an FPGA and like an ASIC? Yeah, so I've actually been trying to come up with the best analogy for FPGAs over the years, okay. right? Because it's such a difficult thing to explain. Um, the way you can think of an FPGA, I want to use the analogy of like cooking. So if you think of like an a, a CPU, which is a type of ASIC, um, a CPU executes. Oh, sorry. Uh, we we need to we need to explain what ASIC stands for. Oh, ASICs are application specific integrated circuits. Um, they are uh, highly integrated, high performance uh, blocks of usually digital logic, but it can also be mixed signals, so include analog processing, like uh, something like a sound card or something like that. Um, and these are chips that um, people design to to do something, usually math and logic, uh, on, on, in like your TV, your smartphone, uh, and your computers. Sorry, uh, you were getting to this analogy. Yeah, the analogy is, uh, so a CPU is, is something that executes software and a soft software. And let's say you use like a kitchen analogy is like, uh, a recipe, right? Um, you follow it step by step. Um, you have this very experienced possibly, um, um, chef that has spent years of training so that they can execute very different um, recipes, uh, and they might even be able to do a few of them at the same time, which is called multitasking, and uh, processors are getting better at that with multi-core and multi-threaded. Um, and FPGA is a little bit closer to a factory. Um, it takes longer to design. You have a bigger upfront um, investment in both time and uh, resources to, to put it together but it has incredibly high throughput capabilities. And you would only decide to use an FPGA if for some reason you want to make 10,000 or 100,000 pizzas a week, right? Um, so it's a, it, they do similar things to a CPU and software, but the, the way it achieves it is very different. Yeah, it's, it's almost like your software is encoded in how you are uh, connecting these, these logic elements. Is that right? Yeah, um, and it can get... Um, a bit confusing for people looking at this first time because you can implement 
a CPU on an FPGA. <laughs> and those are called soft microprocessors, uh, soft cores, as they're known. Um, so it can get very confusing. And, and what's the point of doing that beyond just like an exercise to show that, you know, you've got like a, a you know, a Turing complete version of an FPGA? Like, why, why would you do that? Yeah, it is, it is. First of all, it is a very common uh, first project for, for students. Um, and it's, it's often taught in schools, uh, like make your first CPU on an FPGA. Um, but the purpose of doing that is that um, why have more chips on the board if you don't need to, right? Mm. You can fit so much more in, in, in the chip. Uh, and FPGAs, uh, depending on what kind they are, some of them are one-time programmable, but most of them are reprogrammable. So if you want to use a different CPU, you want more CPU cores, you want to move them around, you want to get rid of them, uh, you have that option um, after you've created your circuit boards. FPGAs are, are super flexible because they can act like the processor and the memory at the same time, right? Like you can just grab different bits and, and rearrange them freely to some extent is is that right yeah it's they're incredibly uh, reconfigurable design devices they they're, they're known as pLDs or programmable logic devices um, they often have embedded memory um, usually called block RAM and this RAM um, usually you get a if you're lucky a few megabytes on on the chip and it's super high speed um, you get incredible bandwidth um, uh, and but uh, you, you do still, depending on the application, need external RAM. And it's it's the same stuff that you would put in a laptop or a desktop computer. Uh, so DDR3, DDR4 RAM. So Alex, as far as uh, uh, Kepler, the company itself, could you tell us about uh, your your Constellation, uh, your services, your customers, just kind of a top-level picture to kind of expand out from there? Yeah, so Kepler offers a few services right now. I think uh, one of the major ones uh, is uh, GDS, or Global Data Service. Um, and that service is for uh, people on the ground, terrestrial uh, locations. Uh, it could be a ship, it could be a location on land. Um, but it's for places that don't have um, a, a good internet connection. Um, and it's a the, the way that um, when our CTO describes it as it's it's similar to Dropbox in space. You 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 upload mm. things to the satellite and, and download things from the satellite when it's overhead your uh, point of presence. And then when it passes over a Kepler ground station, uh, it, it moves the data off the satellite and, and new data onto the satellite and brings it to the, the rest of the Internet. Um, and we have a... Uh, high throughput radio that that is capable of moving a lot of data in a single pass uh, and this is capability that um, uh, a lot of different uh, missions like our, our clients missions that are are uh, super important to them um, and I think one of the shining examples that, I, that is one of my favorites and one of the first that we had is a mission called the mosaic mission um, this is with the the polar stern uh, the RV polar stern um, icebreaker um, it, it went mm. into the Arctic um, to 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 study things and they didn't have a good way of moving data on and off the ship uh, while they were up in the Arctic yeah that that's pretty wild I, I, I read about uh, polar stern when they launched it because I, I, those things are just fascinating they <laughs> they're like little mini cities on these ships <laughs> as they go uh, uh, breaking through the ice there. Okay, and and so the idea is uh, you you provide this through a uh, a constellation, right? How, how big's the constellation? So the constellation currently consists of nineteen satellites, and we just launched uh, four recently. Uh, I think uh, just about a week ago, and this constellation is in polar orbit, 
which means that every satellite will visit every single location on Earth. Uh, so one satellite is sufficient to cover everything, um, but um, with high latency, right? So the more satellites you have, the lower the average latency from getting your data on and off the satellite to when it gets to the internet. And back. So are you worried at all about these big constellations that are like coming online that are basically like the internet from space, how that might disrupt? Yeah, so it's a very, for our terrestrial application, um, GDS, uh, first of all, it's, 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 a, it's a product that we really believe in and we'll continue developing, but it's, it's also a stepping stone towards um, our bigger ambitions, which is the internet in space, which is the, the Ether product uh, and the service that we, that we plan to offer soon. Um, but uh, as far as terrestrial applications, um, it's, it, we have a, a unique position of being able to move high volume and anywhere on the Earth. So our orbits, about, I, I believe it's 90 minutes, um, and this is not my area of expertise. Uh, I think it's, it's about 90 minutes uh, to, to go around the planet, um, and we have multiple ground stations. Uh, so that also reduces uh, the latency because uh, you, you need the satellite to visit the, the customer's point of presence and our point of presence, uh, which of which we have several. Do these satellites communicate with one another or do they communicate with the ground station via laser or by some other means? Uh, so the current satellites are, are KU band satellites. That's pretty public information uh, because of uh, radio and regulatory filings. So they, uh, the GDS operates over a KU band link. And but currently the the Gen One satellites uh, they they don't do a lot of uh, between satellite and uh, intersatellite co uh, communications but um it is is a necessary part of the Ether product uh, and the services that we want to offer because uh, that product will start with real time communications uh, to uh, for other space assets to use. So as it is right now, basically you have one satellite that receives the data and then that same satellite will soon make a pass over a ground station and then that's when you know it's transmitted back to ground so it doesn't have to communicate with them like with any other satellites that are on orbit because it doesn't have to be like real time this is just you know like dropbox in space and so you can probably wait like 20 minutes or however long it takes which i imagine is probably about how long you might have to wait but like no more than that uh, just because it's you know a 90 minute orbit and I don't know how many ground stations there are, but I imagine it's, you know, pretty good coverage. Yeah. So that, that estimate on time is about correct. Could you tell us a little bit about Ether? And, um, I, I think, uh, maybe a good starting point, kind of a hook is on your website. Um, Ether describes itself as a static IP address for your space asset, which is pretty darn cool. Yeah. So as a satellite operator ourselves, we, we understand the challenges of being only able to talk to your satellite and send commands and get telemetry when it's over one of our own ground stations. Like we're, we're forced to own our own, own ground stations or, or use, uh, services, uh, um, that can provide that type of thing. But even the, the problem with ground stations is that you need ground and the, the planet Earth is covered mostly by water. Um, so the Ether product, um, the initial iteration of it will be providing a real-time link. Uh, it's a low data rate link um, for telemetry and control of uh, for our clients to to uh, to command their their own satellites. So the client commands a satellite. Like exactly what does that mean? Actually, I guess I'm a little bit confused there. Yeah. So using uh, a a backhaul link. Um, we go from a customer site to the Kepler ground station to the Ether satellite. And from the Ether satellite, there will be uh, links to customer satellites um, for, okay. for them to use. Very cool. Alex, I have a question about the relationship between the ground-based GDL and, or sorry, GDS? Yes, that's correct. GDS. GDS. 
GDS, thank you, sir. Uh, a relationship between the ground-based GDS and the uh, space-to-space uh, ether system uh, is the idea that all the, and I feel like given how adaptable <laughs> your satellites are, I suspect I know what the answer might be, but is it that this all the satellites in the constellation might be operating towards one service or the other at any given moment, or are there going to be a different beyond Gen 1 type of satellites that would be yeah, so, capable and yeah yeah it'll be beyond gen one uh but um it will f- be flying a very similar pl- payload so gds is both the product and a test platform chris in the chat our uh our resident commercial pilot uh of course asks what about aircraft and i, I believe this is uh in reference to gds uh so gds uh today doesn't serve aircraft but you know it's there's there's always things that we can dream of, right? <laughs> sure. Well, this is this is kind of a silly, fun question, uh, but I've noticed the satellites have some pretty wonderful names. Uh, I'm seeing Baby Yoda, uh, Lucky, Stella, uh, C-3PO. <laughs> is the plan to to keep that going for all 140? <laughs> I, I I'm surprised you didn't bring up pseudo RMRF. <laughs> oh my goodness, I didn't. I'm using uh, Astria to kind of just like randomly catch some of these, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I suggest a less track for this type of thing. Um, mm. But yeah, these these names are we come up with them. Uh, uh, sometimes it's it's by the team that has like sometimes experimented the payloads or they did a lot of work on the on that particular satellite, or it's uh, for our big launch. Uh, we I believe it was early last year. Um, it was a Falcon Nine launch where we launched eight satellites at once. Um, we had uh, every team name one of the satellites. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Alex, was there anything that you wanted to talk about uh, that we didn't cover? Yeah, I just want to say that um, Ether as a product, it's it's not the it's not the end, right? It's I'm so excited to see what our customers and clients do with the capability that we give them, right? Um, it's it's all the Earth's observation. It's uh, it's it's all the missions and research and, and services that they want to offer that uh, we will help make possible. Uh, Ether is a puzzle piece in in the greater space economy. All right. Well, thanks for this interview. This has been very very eye opening for me because uh, this was you know about a lot of stuff that I'm not too familiar with. So I learned something. So we have reached the end of the show. So our penultimate question for you is: Where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn um, and of course Kepler at Kepler and our related Instagram and uh, Twitter pages. Um, we have a article from about a year and a half back. I think uh, that is on IEEE Spectrum uh, about Kepler's uh, vision for what inner in space can be. So our, our final question is always uh, a game of overrated or underrated. I have a list of five different topics. And what I'd like is for you to tell me whether each of these topics uh, is overrated, underrated, or potentially uh, correctly rated, properly valued um, by the industry, uh, the the space industry, or the world as a whole. It depends on how you want to apply this. So, overrated or underrated CubeSats? I think it's very underrated because the the number of things you can do in a CubeSat as technology has shrunken is is so much more uh, than than what people think. Right. Go go figure. Miniaturization uh, of electronics applies to Anything you put electronics in. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Overrated, underrated Unix make. Um, probably pretty neutral on that one. Um, it's an excellent <laughs> tool um, and uh, it's it's essential. Um, but I think it, it, it gets reasonable um, like 
recognition for what it's able to do and it's used as a backend tool for stuff like CMake and, and, and many others. Overrated, underrated icebreaker ships. <laughs> oh man, that so so <laughs> random. I don't know what the I, I say underrated because people don't really know about the research that they do with these and, and, and what these ships do. And I I mean I recently I, I think I two or three weeks ago watched the documentary on the Polar Stern because I hadn't and I didn't know it existed. Mm. Um, and it's mm. such a cool mission. Cool. Uh, yeah. Under, underrated for sure. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, overrated or underrated mechanical keyboards? I have a mechanical keyboard. I, I do kind of think they're maybe a bit overrated. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't make your work significantly better. Uh, I like having one. I, I like as a hobby. I, I like the community, but maybe a bit overrated. Um, I, I wouldn't spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, on a keyboard, but I think a $100 for, for one keyboard that will last you like decades. Um, pretty good. Yeah, sure. I mean, I spent a hundred dollars on a non-mechanical keyboard just because it had certain features I liked. I don't see why spending a hundred dollars on a keyboard that has nice clicky keys, uh, doesn't make any sense either. All right. And finally, uh, overrated or underrated the Ash character. So this is, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, it's the, the Latin character that is an A and an E combined. And it is also the first letter in the name of the ether product. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting one. Um, so I personally, uh, think it, it, it might be a bit overrated because uh, how do you type that? Um, um, I don't know if I hit, have to hit some alt codes on, on the numpad. And I don't like numpads, uh, because I, I think it, uh, having a mouse like that far to the right, like maybe I'll put a numpad on the left side, but I don't do anything. I, like, I don't do accounting or data entry or anything like that very often. Oh my so goodness. I don't need Alex, a numpad. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> um, oh no. But, how do you type that? I mean, I guess you need an umpad to type that, right? Yeah, probably. Uh, or you copy and paste it after looking it up. So maybe a bit overrated on that one. I was going to say, I guess it's like underrated if you type in Latin a lot, but that's about it, right? <laughs> I mean, who, yeah, like who uses that character? Well, so so Dennis has an impromptu overrated, underrated. So go ahead, Dennis. <laughs> I think we know the answer to this one, but overrated, underrated, numpads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, I... I've I've done some stuff that that did require a numpad, and when you need a numpad, um, there's really no other option. I I just personally I don't need one, so I think I'm neutral on that. You and I think um, the ergonomics of having a numpad when you don't need it um, can actually be uh, pretty poor. So sometimes you don't want it. Uh, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for making the time for us. Yeah, thank you. It's it's been a lot of fun. So now we're on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have a bunch of winners. Uh, we have Leon Running Man, The Greek, Deskin Miller, Cy Kyle, Fonji Ricola, and Chris slash Stai in the chat, as always. So congratulations. That was a lot more guesses than I would have thought, because uh, the clue was, get me my briefcase, and I had no clue what that was about so yeah what is this briefcase and what does it have to do with space yeah so everyone who guessed got it right with the bonus points and everything and i'm going to take this maybe in a different direction than you're expecting because the briefcase is a reference to what i think if you just did a google search of this event you would get but i want to actually talk maybe more about the 
the science of the uh, the experiment and the the rocket and just uh, the spaceport and these other kind of aspects to it. Uh, but I will talk about the the event itself. So the event was on the 25th of January, 1995, and it was the launch of the Cipher sounding rocket experiment. Uh, Cipher is a an acronym uh, S C I F E R, and I'll talk a little bit about that in the experiment. But first. Uh, what was it launched on? It was launched on a Black Brant 12 rocket. And so this is a four-stage sounding rocket. You might be familiar with them. Um, and these uh, are specifically uh, Canadian-designed sounding rockets. And they have a long history and many iterations, as you can imagine, uh, uh, with it going up to 12 in this case. Like these rockets often are, they are uh, multiple stages all tied to each other with uh, them also being called by the name of the individual rocket uh, solid motors on each stage. And so this one could also be called a Talos Taurus Black Brand 10 Nika. Say that five times fast. <laughs> I know, right? Just rolls off the tongue. And yeah, so the first stage, that Talos is a Mark 11 Mod 5 Talos motor. Uh, it's 132 inches long with a 31.1 inch diameter. It's got some nice uh, tail fins on it. Um, and this was something I hadn't really thought about more. I would always assume that the earlier stages, uh, uh, were always bigger, but that's not, uh, maybe in diameter that's true. But in this case, when it comes to the length, the second stage is actually longer. The, the Taurus motor, that's 165 inches long. Uh, but it does taper down a bit to 22 and three quarters inch diameter. And then the third stage, which is a Black Brandt 10 motor, is even longer than the previous two. It's 210 inches long, with a, again, tapering down to 17 and a quarter inches diameter. So just <laughs> throwing a lot of numbers at you, 132 inches, then 165 inches, then 210 inches. And then unlike uh, uh, most, if not all, the other Black Brandt models, um, this one had a fourth stage that was a uh, Nika mo motor. Uh, which was shorter uh, than anything else. The the final, you know, get you up there. Uh, obviously, you're, right, this being a sounding rocket, you are not going orbital, but you need that last, last little oomph that you get from the Nika. And so that's uh, 76 inches long and has the same uh, 17 and a quarter inch diameter as the Black Brant uh, 10, the third stage. And so uh, this rocket... Uh, very useful. Um, it could hit anywhere from 400 to 1500 kilometers, depending on uh, the mass and uh, launch altitude. I'm not quite sure. What what would you call this? Uh, in my brain, how high up is your rocket pitched? Like what it's what's it what is its angle relative to the ground? I would call that an inclination, but clearly inclination means something else when it comes to orbits. What would you call that elevation? <laughs> um, because saying altitude makes it sound like it's almost like a horizontal thing and you're dropping it. Like, like, are you aiming at your sounding rocket 45 degrees above the horizontal or 60 degrees or 90 degrees or 85 degrees? Like, what is that angle between the rocket and the horizontal called? I'm looking at what I've found so far is just uh, it can be called uh, the vertical launch angle or the, or in this angle. case, the vertical launch angle at launch. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it pretty much is the pitch, like Delta V is saying in the chat. And yeah, Colin kind of got that, the, the launch angle. So thank you. Because that, that was just a term I just, I wouldn't know how to describe it. And in documentation I was looking at, you know, they had a lowercase i <laughs> and uh, gave it some values uh, in terms of degrees, but didn't actually say what it was. I'm also seeing it called uh, the elevation angle, so you can call it that too, I guess. Mm -hmm. Elevation and altitude in my brain could have both worked, but then they make me start to think, well, what about horizontal uh, launches? <laughs> Are you talking yeah. about the altitude or elevation of the uh, carrier plane before it releases it? So 
Okay. Well, that was fun. Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it could uh, handle a payload of up to a thousand pounds, but this uh, particular uh, cipher experiment was going to be uh, one-tenth that mass. And it was an interesting reason why they had to do that. So again, the cipher uh, experiment, it was, uh, its PI was, uh, this uh, gentleman, uh, Paul Kintner, who's a really big person in studying, uh, the ionosphere and atmosphere of the earth. And, uh, cipher stands for sounding of the cleft ion fountain energ energization region. Energization is not an easy word for me to say. And so, <laughs> uh, the term may actually make sense. You have to, learn what a cleft ion fountain is. And this is something that I had to look up uh, and, and struggle for. But it's something that we've seen. If you've ever seen the Earth's magnetosphere shown, uh, you if the Earth was just sitting by itself, isolated from the rest of the universe, it would look broadly like, you know, its magnetic field lines would look broadly like a dipole. But it's not, right? It's moving around and it has a solar wind and interplanetary plasma, or, you know, space that it's plowing through, and thus it has uh, the the geotail, the Earth's tail behind it. All right, sorry, wait, hang on. So you, you said dipole, so you're talking about the donut shape that we normally think about magnetic lines traveling in. Yeah, yeah, like a bar magnet would be uh -huh. uh, approximately a dipole, yeah. Yeah, I never heard that shape referred to as a dipole, so that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, so, so uh, this cleft... Uh, is referring to apparently, you know, some of the lines are going to go back towards the tail, right? But then at some point, as you go to closer and closer to the magnetic north and south poles, you get to where they don't drag out towards the tail, but they go forward and kind of close around on the Earth nice and So let me, let me get, let me give a little, uh, visual analogy here. If the, if the dipole shape is, is a bagel with no, the hole is like swelled shut like some bagels do, like a, like an Einstein bros bagel. <laughs> if you were to have that, that dipole shape made out of, uh, like a, um, a latex balloon and you were to, um, pinch one side and pull it, you would get the tail formation where it kind of stretches out on the opposite side from the sun. And so if, if you're, not readily familiar with the shape of the of the magnetic field that's what you're thinking of it kind of like swooshes backwards mm -hmm. away from the sun is that fair right thank you yeah exactly and then and then on the on the sunward side I, i'm not 100 percent sure what that shape is is that like pushing your finger into this donut balloon and it and it dips inward. So I'm realizing uh, when you said donut i think you might be thinking of more of a toroidal magnetic field which isn't yeah quite the same thing. No, sorry, this this would just be a space filling. Uh, if you had a bar magnet and you plopped it on a table and then poured iron shavings all around it, there's just a, a, a constant change of, you know, magnetic flux field lines that just tail off the further so away you go. So to, to visualize it, it's, it's less like a bagel-shaped balloon and more like a bunch of bagel-shaped balloons nested inside of each other. Yes it, yes. it is It is toroidal in sort of a general sense, but like you said, it's space-filling. It's not just the the surface of the toroid. It's all these layers. It's, ah, it's a bagel croissant is what it is. What's a bagel <laughs> croissant? I don't even know what that is. A bagel croissant. I'm glad you asked. It is a perfect analogy for the magnetosphere of the Earth. 
But but it's made out of latex because you can deform it. I thought you were referencing an actual food. I was like, what's a bagel croissant? That doesn't help me. <laughs> but no, okay, I see what you mean. So it's basically like it's layered like a croissant, but yeah. shaped kind of like a bagel. Yeah, like when, when you when you tear a croissant in half, you get these concentric uh, mm-hmm. ribbons of dough, right? Like, I mean, now I'm hungry for a really good croissant. <laughs> Yeah, but but it is worth keeping in mind though that it looks like there's these layers because that's just where we're drawing the field right. lines to because we have to them. make them discrete. Inf- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But there's really infinitely many of them kind of everywhere. So on the sunward side, you get deformation as well, and is that poking inward or does it? Well, actually, I'm I'm not entirely sure if it's necessarily the sunward side or the uh, the side that the Earth is moving towards. <gasps> Oh, interesting. Yeah, that. I mean, at, at very least, it would be canted slightly in that direction, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, maybe maybe the the solar wind is you know exerting a little bit of a push. But like, yeah, if you, it's like your hair. If you had long hair, right, it's getting dragged back when you're on a bike. That's kind of the uh, the the idea behind this uh, magnetic tail. <laughs> That's a but good. But the thing too. is, but but if your but if your head was really weird, um, it, it turns out that not every single line is going to end up getting swept back some of them when they are in the uh you know the, the forward direction of the earth as it moves some of them will just close back on themselves that distinction means that there's going to be this cleft where some lines right next to each other adjacent lines one line they're both going to leave the earth's surface and one line is going to go cruising to the uh you know as part of the tail and the other line is going to move forward in the opposite direction and close in on itself once it reaches the other pole. Mm-hmm. And that cleft there, apparently, I had to learn all this earth science stuff uh, this morning. <laughs> that that gap there, yeah, like Colin says in the chat, it's like parting your hair. So we could kind of yeah. still stick with uh, hair analogies. And in that part, that cleft, is where a lot of uh, oxygen ions, ionized oxygen, uh, was believed to essentially travel from the ionosphere and get, you know, pulled along these magnetic field lines and thus make up most of the magnetospheric mass, most of the plasma that you would find just within mm. the Earth's magnetosphere generally. Yeah, I mean, because it's kind of funnel-shaped, right? So it makes sense that something would travel in the same direction down the down the funnel, but, you know, inside the edge of the funnel. Right, right. yeah, it's, it's a path of le- less resistance to, to make it through there. It's, it's, yeah, it's a little opening. Um, you're, if, when you part your hair... You know, if your hair is thinning, it would be able to see your skin much more clearly through that part than through the other other sides. Yeah, I'm also seeing uh, them called polar horns, and I saw uh, cusps as well. And so there might be technical, again, this is very far outside my uh, my understanding, but they, there might be uh, technical differences between them. But if you were to Google polar horns or cusps, the, you find that, that it's referring to this the same part. And trust, I will have uh, images in the show notes for everybody. And so uh, what better way to check it uh, rather than, you know, being on orbit where you're well above the ionosphere and you're looking down or from the ground where you're, again, far removed from it by many kilometers than to actually fly stuff through it. And so that's one of these wonderful sweet spots that sounding rockets are good for. And so they wanted to launch their rocket essentially through this, which meant they were going to be passing through the ionosphere and auroras uh, at the same time. Uh, I guess, aurorae, uh, and be able to make uh, in situ uh, as well as uh, remote sensing measurements as it goes plowing through there. A good location for this would be the uh, Andoya rocket range in Norway. To give you an idea of how far north this is, this is at 69.29 degrees north, uh, so almost 70 degrees, so 
pretty far up on the top of Norway. To you know, get your geography figured out, right? If you think about the uh, Scandinavian Peninsula, right? <laughs> uh, Sweden's on the eastern side. Norway is on the western side, and Norway, therefore, has a side that looks like it gets broken up into all these small islands as they sort of dissipate, you know, out into the, uh, I guess, the, the Arctic Ocean and the uh, northern Atlantic. But uh, it's, it's one of these islands, maybe, you know, two-thirds of the way up from the bottom of the peninsula to the top. So it's not at the tippy top of uh, Scandinavia, but it's getting pretty close there. And so it's close enough that you could just do directly uh, injection and you could do direct injections to polar orbit and being on an island, but adjacent to the mainland means it's much easier to get there and has a lot of infrastructure um, and you're able to ship things there uh, very easily. And so that's uh, one of Norway's two big sites. Uh, I never realized how over the top the other one is Svalbard. Um, this is basically in like the Arctic Circle. Yeah, Deathkin in the chat saying this within the Arctic Circle. That is, that makes, uh, Iceland look way to the south. And so Svalbard, as you can imagine, okay, well, now you're really going as high inclination or high latitude as you want. It's the highest latitude of any, uh, you know, major launch site on Earth. I have to imagine, I don't even have to say major, any launch site on Earth. There's none higher than that, unless you're literally launching from northern Greenland or maybe some Arctic ice. <laughs> Let me give some context real quick. So the northern border of Spain, the southern border of France, and New York, and San Francisco is a bit farther south, but all these things are, are at about 40 degrees. So like 70 degrees is very far north. Yeah. I mean, it, it's further north than most of Greenland, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly. Well, and, and, uh, uh, another good one is the border of the United States with Canada going through like Washington all the way over to like Minnesota. That's, mm -hmm. that's the 49th parallel. Is that right? So like even, even that, yeah, 49th parallel, like even that is much farther south, uh, than Svalbard. Thank you. Yeah. That, that is good context. So, so not even close. And so, uh, Svalbard, I'm, I'm actually bringing up, uh, it will play a small role in this story as well. Uh, so in fact, actually, I guess in a sense, it plays a very large role in it. So it is worth talking about and really emphasizing that it's really up there in the Arctic circle. It's, it's a site that you can, uh, also launch rockets from, but it, I assume isn't as big as Andoya because it's just harder to get to. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and if you've uh, heard of Andoya before, it could be just because, uh, I mean, it's it's been a launch site for so many years as, uh, for sounding rockets, but it's been in the news lately. Um, they do want to upgrade it to orbital, to do some European orbital launches there. And so uh, we'll probably be featuring it more frequently in... Uh, Maybe it's a major news story or at least a short and sweet at some point in the coming years. Uh, it's a really cool place. It looks beautiful. It's nested right on the, uh, the, the water and it's got a cliff just behind it. So it's in kind of a little narrow, uh, space between, uh, a cliff and, or some mountains and the, uh, the, the ocean. And so in any event, let's get to the launch itself. Okay. So again, it was the 25th of January, 1995 at 062448 UTC. So it was a morning launch and they launched on a northward trajectory. So basically it's heading straight to uh, the poles. Uh, you could almost see that as. And specifically, they had to target a very high apogee, about as high you mentioned, uh, I mentioned earlier that the uh, Black Brant 12 could go up to about 1500 kilometers. And so this launch had an apogee of uh, 1452 kilometers. So about at the limit that it could do. And the reason for that is that they needed to clear uh, Svalbard. And so this is a 
a suborbital launch, and so it's it goes really high, and it goes, you know, it has to go far enough to be able to, in this case, clear Svalbard, so it splashes down safely in presumably Arctic sea ice, um, because if they wanted to go short of Svalbard, uh, which is to say land south of it, then they wouldn't have gotten to a high enough altitude to do the uh, science goals that they had. In any event, that left uh, the the scientists having to make a very lightweight payload. Like I said, it could go up to $1,000 on this type of sounding rocket, but they went with uh, something that I think it finally weighed out at 112 kilograms. And so it had some instruments on there. They were all the type of things when we talk about measuring uh, interstellar plasma. I know it brought up these types of uh, uh, spectrometers and uh, plasma wave receivers on other spacecraft. But the only ones I, I think I want to call out in particular are... Uh, the ion, electron, and then uh, oxygen plus and H plus, hydrogen plus uh, spectrometers. So the ionized hydrogen and oxygen spectrometers. They were called HEAPS-1, HEAPS-2, and BEEPS, which immediately makes me think of space balls. Yeah, the bleeps, the sweeps, and the creeps. And so we didn't have those three. We had instead the HEAPS, the HEAPS, and the BEEPS. In any event, I don't want to get too much in the weeds about it, but it's it's a pretty cool piece of, uh, 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 or it was a very cool instrument. Um, Pretty cool looking too, if you check it out. It essentially had uh, a few different. Well, it was it was a uh, a skeleton essentially with three platforms on it, and then these four columns running along the side. And so some of the uh, instruments would be on the platforms, and some of them would be on booms ranging in different sizes uh, outside of it there too. And uh, all this sat on top of what I thought was interesting was uh, was called a uh, a D spin igniter. And so sounding rockets, uh, they launch them spinning. Typically, it sounds like, uh, presumably because they're uh, lower mass than these big old rockets. And so you want to have uh, uh, some nice uh, stabilization going along with them. Uh, if anybody knows better, please. Uh, well, it's, it's also just cheap and easy. It's also cheap and easy. Yeah, to not have yeah. to deal with that. That's fair. Yeah. And so afterwards, if you want to despin your payload, you can use uh, yo-yos like we had talked about. Or it sounds like you can fire essentially a small little igniter to try to zero out your uh, angular momentum uh, in, or your rotation that's happening. Pretty cool. They launched this thing and it was a scientific success. Uh, the measurements it got were two orders of magnitude uh, better in terms of resolution and it flew through several aurorae on the launch and was really cool. And when I look at all the papers about it, they have nothing but nice things to say about the science and the experiment and how cool that was. And they don't mention what actually happened on that day. Which I guess is appropriate for, you know, publishing in a scientific journal. But I was curious whether or not the incident would be brought up in these uh, scientific reports. And so what is the incident? Well, this northward trajectory, okay, we're in northern Norway and we're basically going straight to the pole. Uh, that included an air corridor that stretches uh, across the North Dakota Minuteman 3 silos from the United States. Okay, remember, we're talking about the North Pole where... You know, Canada and the northern United States and Siberia, right? The the fastest path is not <laughs> to go along a line of latitude, say, or head east or west, right? It's to go over the Arctic. And so the Russian uh, radars started picking up this launch, and they went uh, essentially full alert. And so it got all the way to the point where Boris Yeltsin, the then president, got out the uh, nuclear briefcase. And so that's the reference to the clue, get me my briefcase. And so the nuclear briefcase is a way to, uh, as I understand it, communicate with the other, essentially the top military people to be able to coordinate, even if some infrastructure goes down, to coordinate your 
nuclear retaliation and essentially wipe out life, uh, human life on Earth. Uh, this was one of those, uh, not the only one, but one of these very scary and very close to uh, nuclear mm. uh, war that we came. And this is, again, this is 1995. So this is uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. But, you know, we still had these gigantic arsenals. Uh, alleged, uh, from reporting, uh, I'll just give the quote here to make it clear. This is from a... a, a uh, a, a source that'll be in the uh, show notes. Um, it is reported that President Boris Yeltsin activated his, quote, nuclear keys for the first time in his tenure, and larger quote. And so uh, essentially, uh, they were ready for, for action. Russian subcommanders uh, went to combat readiness. They prepared for nuclear retaliation. But mercifully, Andoya is northwest of Moscow. And so if it's heading straight north, it's not going really towards the uh, it's not going towards Moscow or, or Russia, really, for that matter. But it is still in this highly watched space. Uh, essentially, the um, observers saw that it wasn't really getting closer to Russian airspace. And in the 10 minutes that they had uh, from time of detection to decide on a course of action, they kind of figured, OK, this is not really a nuclear attack. Uh, this is something else happening. Uh, as that happened, uh, uh, evidently, the Russian public didn't learn about this until uh, uh, the news the next week. And so this was uh, something that, I guess, you know, uh, the higher-ups had bigger fish to fry. And you might ask, well, what went wrong? And it was just uh, a miscommunication, essentially. Uh, the scientists had done their due diligence and notified 30 countries, including Russia. Uh, and so some people in the Russian hier uh, hierarchy knew about it. But uh, evidently, that did not reach their radar technicians. And so within, again, we're talking about minutes trying to figure out what was happening. And so even though they knew that there was, you know, this launch from Andoya, if their radar techs are telling them one thing, that maybe this is a Minuteman missile coming from the United States, uh, you know, it, it would take those few minutes to resolve this and figure things out. And so protocols were reevaluated and redesigned afterwards. And this was the last, I think, of the really big ones uh, that we had as far as uh, close calls. Can I just take this moment to say... I I don't particularly like living on Earth because of things like this, and I really love in Deep Space Nine when Quark said when they when they travel back in time uh, to uh, uh, the nuclear uh, testing range on Earth, and Quark goes, "That's ridiculous. Uh, nuclear reactions don't occur inside planetary atmospheres." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, they do here," and he's like, "These people are gonna." kill themselves <laughs> <laughs> rather than that let's end on a more positive note like i said cypher it was a wonderful experiment it worked out great and then uh, uh they designed a essentially an upgraded one cypher 2 and that one launched uh the same pi and it launched on january 18th 2008 successfully and uh was able to uh, expand even more so on the measurements from the earlier cypher experiment so in any event that is your event this week in spaceflight. Cool. Well, that was uh, that was terrifying at the end there. <laughs> yeah, but that was that was another really good one, Dennis. Okay. Well, um, let's hope next week is not as well. Is it just as entertaining, but not quite as uh, terrifying? <laughs> yeah. So next week is the first through the seventh of February. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yes. Next week in two thousand eight, the clue is failing wet. Failing wet. Okay. All right. Well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. 
And we have five events, and most of them actually launches, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> and because uh, I think last week we didn't have many, but we're making up for it. We had more before we started pruning the the list down based on mm -hmm. uh, actual likelihood in the real world. Okay. All right. So our first launch uh, is a Long March 4B flying a, a classified payload. I saw a name... Uh, attached to it at some point, but it's, it's a classified military payload one way or the other. It is going to be, uh, launching for UTC. It's actually split between midnight. So it's going to be launching Tuesday, January 5th, uh, between 2334 hours UTC and Wednesday at, at 0 hundred four minutes, zero hours, four minutes UTC. So just, just barely splitting, uh, midnight UTC. Uh, this is going to be launched out of Jiuquan, uh, in China. Uh, Space Launch Now is saying it's launching out of launch area four. So SLS two or pad 103. After that, on January 27th is the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching CSG2, which is an Earth observation satellite for the Italian Space Agency, uh, part of a reconnaissance constellation that uses synthetic aperture radars and operates in the X-band. So that's pretty cool. And the launch window for that is at 2311 UTC, and it's launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. Yeah, and uh, a bit nebulous, just one of these keep an eye out for, because uh, Astra is currently waiting to get their FAA license approved after their successful static fire before they launch their mission from uh, from the Cape, right? This is the whole Yay. big thing about this one? This one's yep. from the Cape? <laughs> yep, Slick yeah. 46. So at some point in the coming week, uh, again, keep your eye out for that. Uh, social media is always a good place for that. And so this is their mission. Uh, this is the VCLS Demo 2 mission, uh, and it's going to be taking five CubeSats as part of Alana 41, which is, you know, the NASA Alana payloads, which uh, are, you know, all from universities uh, or, you know, NASA's uh, Johnson Space Center. But uh, yeah, you got the Curie CubeSat, the Inca CubeSat, the CubeSat with a Q CubeSat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the R5S1, and then, of course, uh, the show's... Uh, Personal favorite, Bama One from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And so, uh, uh, good luck, Delta V. And, uh, yeah, in any event, good luck for their launch and hopefully, uh, they make it to orbit on their first try from the Cape. All right. So next up is uh, a virtual event that, uh, uh, Dennis found in a, uh, in a newsletter and it looks really darn cool. It is a JWST virtual town hall, uh, put on by STSCI, the Space Telescope Science Institute. Um, and boy, do they have some cool names. Uh, the MC is JWST uh, Deputy Program Scientist Hashima Hassan. Uh, and then they also have a program scientist, a, a Deputy Senior Project Scientist. I, I mean, it's just, it's uh, Observatory Operations, JWST Program Scientist, just everywhere. It's It looks like it's going to be really cool. Um, it's going to be a virtual event. There will be a link in the show notes to STSCI's uh, website. Um, this will be happening on the 28th, uh, which is Friday. Um, and they have it listed in Eastern time uh, from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. I'm really going to try and, uh, and listen into this if I can. And then back to 
SpaceX. So on the 29th, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching Starlink Group 47. So this is a batch of 49 satellites for the Starlink constellation. And yeah, this is just two days after their previous launch, which is pretty cool. So it's, it's nice to see them doing so many launches so easily now. It's like not a big deal. Uh, and this is launching at 2000 hours UTC from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. So right next door to 40. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I believe geographically it's it's pretty close. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Death Kit, Mike, VT, who's formerly Fiery Dawn, Colin, Gopal, The Greek, James Sutherland, Delta V, Ricola, Kenton, Emery, and Sam for joining us live in today's chat. Holy Thank you. Cow. Thank you so much. Right. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.